0: My guest today is Jonathan Pritchard, founder of the international consulting company, The Hellstrom Group, which has trained teams to improve their sales, negotiation, and presentation skills on six of the seven continents. His expertise comes from his background traveling the world as a mentalist, a unique type of entertainer specializing in mind reading tricks. We discussed his journey of growing up poor in the mountains of North Carolina to majoring in art in college and eventually becoming an international keynote speaker and consultant. He shared stories about how he got into mentalism and mind reading, and how that understanding of the human brain has allowed him to advise Fortune 500 companies in sales, marketing, and other deliverables. We also discussed how we learned Kung Fu at record speed and the importance of how discipline and effort best correlate to success in every aspect of life. Without further ado, Jonathan Pritchard.
1: Long story short is I grew up weird, man. Like that's <laughs> that's really it. I I took a very strange path through life and who knew that all those detours would all be valuable uh, a decade later. So basically I grew up as an introverted kid who spent my afternoons after school at the county library until my mom was off work and then we'd go home. So I had about two hours every day, just hanging out in the library. I wound up uh, spending most of my time in the art section, looking at, at the old master's paintings from, from the Renaissance era. And right next to that is the games and hobbies section of the library. So I would read poker books. I found my way to magic tricks and that was super cool. So the illustrations were fun. The the walkthroughs were neat. So I started doing card tricks and coin tricks and mind reading tricks are just a a flavor of the magic world. And that was most interesting to me. So that's kind of what set me down the trajectory of doing mind reading tricks because I'd make a coin disappear and then people would be like, oh, you're just hiding it in your hand. Well, if I could tell people what street I grew up on, there's no explanation for that. It was just deeply unsettling. And I was like, all right, I like that. And in addition to going down the mind reading trail, I then got interested in why mind reading tricks are even possible in the first place. what, What is it about the human wiring that makes it even feasible in the first place? for me to be able to create that experience for somebody, like there's gotta be some weird wiring there. So I got interested in the psychology behind the fundamentals about how we interact with reality that mentalists kind of side jack in order to create those impossible experiences. So that's that's really the the root of my curiosity is learning to kind of hack that process.
0: Do you think that curiosity stemmed from being an introvert? Ooh, I
1: think so. For, for me, it was curiosity about how does the world work? And I, I just have always been interested in that. I had a pretty good aptitude for science. I was in one of the academically gifted Programs And when I was in the sixth grade, for some reason, they had me take the ACT or the SAT, one of those. And in the science portion, I did better than 91% of graduating seniors that year. Wow. And that's... it wasn't because I had tutors or anything. It was just, it all made sense to me. And I just loved knowing how stuff works. And I think that was kind of the start. And then magic, and then more specifically, mentalism gave me a context to explore all of my curiosity. If there's ever been anything I've been interested in, and the mentalism has always been a framework where I can really put it into practice.
0: Yeah, it's interesting you say that, because when you think about someone that's really perceptive in terms of maybe nonverbal cues or or verbal cues, and I'm not sure exactly how how you approach this craft, but I would think, and I could be wrong, but my idea of this is that someone that has that introversion that's not necessarily trying to project themselves is constantly looking towards others and how they are necessarily uh, projecting themselves. So it's it's not this need to speak, this need to interact. It, it might be just this really interesting uh, curiosity, like you said, into how others are feeling, thinking, acting. Did you always find yourself in school observing your classmates, observing teachers? Yeah, it, it, was,
1: it was that I would prefer to just shut up and stay quiet and not be the center of attention. And, and I'm not, I'm not extroverted. Even still, I get paid to be in front of audiences, sometimes a thousand people in person, sometimes millions of people in television. Okay. That doesn't dictate how exhausting it is <laughs> for me to do that. But I figured out early on that it's the people who can speak up for what they want that are the most likely to get it. So I learned to adapt outgoing behaviors in order to get the results that I wanted. And what led me to understand that was when I was about 13 years old, I learned how to juggle fire, juggle knives. I Like I said, I was a really weird kid and my parents were either great or awful at, for, for letting me learn all that kind of stuff. And the person I learned that from was a retired performer who had traveled the world and then retired to the mountains of North Carolina. And then he ran a day camp twice a, twice a week over the summers. Well, he taught me how to perform. And the juggling was a way for me to demonstrate ability that nobody else had without having to say anything. You can just look at it and go, well, that's impressive. So it was a way for me to be in front of a crowd without having to say anything to put myself out there in a real way. It was more of a, I just juggle, people clap, that feels good. Then seeing him do his 20 minute show A hundred times in a row, I knew his script inside out. And he goes, here, you do my show. And then I use his script. I don't have to think about anything. I don't have to wonder what I'm going to say next. I don't have to wonder if they're going to like it or not, because I'm using the script. I've seen work a hundred times already. So then I say his words. I get his applause and the tips. I would pass my hat. For, for party money. And I knew that when I was using his script, saying what he said, the way that he said it, in the timing that he used, I get exactly the same results. Like, that's a powerful insight that I didn't really put together until a decade later. So then it wasn't me. It was the script. And then once I knew I knew the script so well, then I had the freedom When something wacky would happen during the performance, I could then comment on it, be witty in the moment, and venture off the beaten path because I knew that as soon as it no longer worked, I go right back to the script and I know that'll get me where I'm going. So only by having that rote script did I feel comfortable enough exploring my options because I knew I already had the full answer in my pocket. And that's how I got to be more free and fun and playful in performance. But that recipe of follow the script, that gives you the freedom to be innovative in the moment because you always have your fallback. Then that bleeds into my personal life. And if I'm at the grocery store, I've got my shtick for grocery stores or, um, oh, $12.36 $12.36 is your change. Oh, $12.36, that was a good year. right? And then just making up stuff that happened in the year 1236. It, it's ridiculous. It's silly, but it's fun shtick that I know is kind of social lubricant that will get an expected response. And that's kind of how I navigate those uncertain social dynamics using those same kinds of strategies.
0: Yeah, that's a that's a phenomenal strategy. And I love that in leadership and in the business field and in so many arenas, there's a uh, there's an author that speaks a lot about, I feel kind of a parallel to this, uh, Jocko Willink, who was in the Navy, and and he his motto is discipline equals freedom. And it seems like that's exactly what you're you're articulating right now is that if you have this discipline, this structure the structure doesn't actually confine you, especially in your performances. It offers you the freedom to build off of it. It's a jumping off point in so many ways. And there's so many parallels in the business industry to that. It's if you have a sales pitch, if you have a marketing plan, if you have if you have a vision for a company, if it's set in stone and it's, it's so ironed out in the details, you're not necessarily confined to it. You can actually pivot and play with that Because you understand that the structure is going to keep you in the direction that you need to be. And then you can work with it. And then you have the freedom to kind of go off of it. Um, Is that something that you've experienced in, in your career path?
1: Absolutely. And that's most closely mirrored from the art world part of my background. So my degree is in painting, which is hilarious to me. Um, because from, from the mind reading and understanding psychology and being able to influence people and communicate all that kind of stuff, then people often come up to me after my, my workshops and keynotes and stuff. And they go, Oh, so you have a degree in psychology, right? No painting. (laughs) And, and a big part of big part of my touring background, part of my life, psychology majors were my favorite because they'd just be absolutely destroyed. By, by what I would do. And, and then they would, they would come up to me and go, look, man, I, I'm about to graduate with a degree in psychology and I have no clue what in the world you just did. Did I just waste my life? <laughs> no, 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 no. I, I have a very narrow area of specialty. It's a deep understanding of this particular aspect. What you're doing is fine. Don't worry about it. So please keep going. Um, so my my educational background is in painting and design. And then knowing a bunch of performers and entertainers and and that kind of thing, I started kind of a a branding company for my performer friends who would have just got off of websites or their promo posters were garbage and their emails were atrocious. And I was like, who does your promo? And it's like, it's me. Do you have a degree in design or visual communication or branding? And they're like, nope. Nope. Like please, please let me help you. So I would design their posters, their websites, just do a comprehensive branding package for them. And the nightmare would be—I uh, learned this real, real quick. the The worst case scenario was I'll know it when I see it. When when the client goes, yeah, just you know, do five hundred mockups, and then I'll I'll know the right one when I see it. That is the absolute worst waste of time ever. No, I, I'm going to force you to pin me down. You tell me exactly what it is that you want. Well, I'm not the expert here. You're right, but you're the expert in what you like and what you want it to do and who your audience is, who are your clients. Yeah. So the design brief, the more constraining that design brief is, the more creative work you get because there are fewer and fewer opportunities to find the right problem. So, it forces you to find the areas where you can be playful and then really express the, the nature of the, the client, right? So, when you are overly particular about what exactly it is that you want, designers love that because now it's very clear what's going to be successful and not and then the designer will come up with those creative ways to solve the problem but it's your job to know what problem it is you're trying to solve
0: yeah problem solving is a very interesting topic i'm curious in terms of so you have an art degree and that's really interesting and i feel like the two these two things are not mutually exclusive in terms of art and the psychology of humans because there's a lot of people that will say true art should be seen and enjoyed right that's that's part of art and part of understanding how to have someone enjoy something isn't just making the art that you want to make right you you do have to create create art For people, do you feel like your ability to get into the psychology of the human mind and potential clients and just people in general helped you with art and and just achieving a degree in art and and any sort of success in art and specifically in design and marketing? Absolutely. To, To not get too crude about it,
1: but I want to make the point pretty clearly, which is if I wanted to do art to feel good myself, that's called masturbation. And if that is the highest goal of my creative output, well, then I don't need to involve anybody else in that process. I can just go off by myself, do what I enjoy, and nobody else needs to worry about it. However... For me, art is the communication of my vision of my most fundamental values of life. And if you show me what your art is, you're telling me your highest values. And your art celebrates your values. So if it's not beauty, if it's not exalting the human spirit, and your highest value is destruction and ugliness and and that kind of a thing, Thank you, but no, thank you. I'm not interested in in your creative output. So another element is the trap that most artists fall into, which is, you know, I make it. And then whatever the audience takes away from it is is perfectly fine by me. No, it is your job as the artist to effectively communicate your vision and to help your audience understand what you're all about that's your job. And if you're going to weasel out of your sacred duty as a communicator, as an artist, what are you even doing? Why are you wasting your time? Why are you wasting my time? So you can't extract the experience of your audience from the value you create as an artist or a communicator. And in a weird way, it becomes even more clear when you think about it from the performing standpoint. And this is why it's a really good insight that there is no difference between these two, because as a mentalist, my whole shtick is that I can read minds, I can influence decisions, I can help people do superhuman mental feats that they're not even aware they're possible of doing. None of that is centered around how amazing I am. I can't do what I do by myself in a room alone. It just doesn't work that way. Like for me to tell you what I'm thinking, that's not mind reading. That's not impressive. That's a monologue. So it's only impressive if I have the collaboration in real time with my audience. So I've never been a performer it's always been a collaboration with me and my audience to build this experience in real time that cannot happen any other way. That's, that's the goal.
0: That's great. That's a great insight. And that's a great it's a great thought about communication in general too. Uh, like when, when you're talking about that, I was thinking, you know, there's, when you're thinking about intent, in communication like what you do in terms of picking up on on tells or clues to understand what your audience is thinking that's impressive because there's not explicit intent communicated to you so your ability to perceive is so impressive cuz you're picking up on things that are hidden and the impressive part is that you're able to do it but If you're trying to communicate to an audience as an employer, as a company, the last thing you want to do is have your clients and your potential customers be impressive trying to assume what you're telling them or selling them. You want it so explicitly communicated that they don't have to do what you are doing. They can just say, oh, it hit me right in the face. I know what I want. I want that. You told me that. You told me that. So is that something that that you have helped companies understand through your uh through your platform, through your company, through your consulting agency?
1: Exactly. Exactly. That that, that is spot on. I, I feel so seen right now because <laughs> you're right. The weirdly, even more impressive about me being able to do what I do, the more difficult thing is to build enough trust with a stranger who is more comfortable sitting in the audience than they are standing on stage. But then having them believe in their bones that, you know, this Jonathan guy isn't going to make fun of me. This is actually going to be fun. And get them out of their seat up on stage in front of a thousand people. This is the number one nightmare of 99.9% of people. And I just successfully got them to be willingly engaged with that dynamic, right? Like they, there's, they, I don't browbeat them, but they're like, yeah, let me do this. That's stunning in and of itself. And then, I need to be able to have them calm enough to hear my instructions that they need to hear and understand so that they are the star of the show. So I need to have them relaxed enough that they're not in their head, freaking out going, oh my God, these lights are bright. And there's so many people here. What are they going to think? So being able to have me be so confident, that they feel that I'm competent. So now they can trust that this is going to go properly. And then me being able to speak in a way that they can hear and give them instructions that are very difficult to miss here. And if they do something wacky that I couldn't have predicted, why in the world would you have done that? Like, how did you think that's what I just asked you to do? Never blame them because it's on me for giving them unclear instructions of what I expected from them. So then always, always, always taking responsibility for any kind of miscommunication, never blaming your audience member for your mistake of being unclear about what it is that you need from them. And that's why sometimes changing a single word can affect the entire show. It can go from meh to a standing ovation. Case in point is if I handed them a deck of cards and I say, shuffle these up because I want everybody to know that they're not some trick deck, that they're not in some special order, anything like that. And having this person shuffle the deck would prove that. Well, when I say shuffle, they think fancy Vegas shuffle. And then they go, well, I can't do that. And now they're suddenly spiraling out of, oh, I can't do what he asked me to do. And uh, I'm going to drop the cards. Right. But if I say, give these a mix, mix them up. They're like, oh, I can mix. And then they just mix them and same outcome. But one works, one doesn't. And that one hiccup can derail the whole thing. And then they get nervous, and they drop the cards, and now they're freaking out that they've dropped them and and all that kind of stuff, all because of that one word was changed,
0: yeah, that's there's so much to unpack in that. And I think one of the most important things that I've taken away from that in terms of you taking complete ownership of of directions and making sure that the performance is is on point is building this trust and and you know it's funny because it's it's like that that Seinfeld joke where he says you know and you had mentioned 99% of people uh, it's like their biggest public or their biggest fear is public speaking so what is it was a 99% of people would rather be in the casket than uh, giving the eulogy right but if you're able to build trust it gives the participant that confidence to then open themselves up to your message. And whether your message is mentalism, whether it's sales and marketing, it's that it's that foundation of trust. And it may be the words you use, it may be your rapport, um, but it's so important to kind of see everything through from start to finish. I mean, what do you think about that?
1: The magic word is integrity, is really what that is at the, the base, which is that Everything I say is in alignment with everything that I do. And I genuinely care about my audiences. I genuinely want them to have a great time. And the focus is for me to be the facilitator of them understanding, you know, maybe I can do things I didn't think was possible. That's what I want them to walk away from if the goal was for them to be impressed by me and to think I'm great and to be my, my cult members, well, that's a fundamentally different approach to building the experience. And and one of my mentors, uh, James Randy, one of my, my dearest friends, uh, he, he told me this kind of turn of phrase, which was, Jonathan, magicians, they're honest liars. They tell you they're going to lie to you, and then they do. And that's why it's ethical. That's why magicians are are ethical. Any, Any other framework where you're lying to somebody is lying to them, right? So in a way, magicians have the integrity that a lot of people lack because they're very upfront about what they're going to be doing And then the audience can trust them that, oh, this is what I signed up for. I did buy a ticket to the mind reading show. I did buy a ticket to the magic show. I did buy a ticket to this training. So the stated objectives have to be perfectly in alignment with the actual decisions made and your actions. And when what you say is what you do and people can go to the bank on that, those two are perfectly integrated together. That's what integrity is. So the the analogy I, I like to use for this is a uh, plane. You want your your pilot to be so competent, so good at his job that he's almost bored doing this thing that involves your life. So when I'm on stage as a keynote speaker, as a trainer, whatever it is, I have to be so competent at what I do that the audience can now trust that I know what I'm doing. And only at that point can they relax into, yeah, I know this is going to be fun. Like if you got on a plane and the pilot was going, Hey everybody, um, we're going to uh, San Francisco Wait, no, we're going to New York. That's it, New York. And uh, we're, we're going to be cruising at I, I, uh, 20,000 20, feet maybe or uh, 40, 40, Yeah, 40,000 is good. Um, so uh, I'm off that plane, right? Like I'm off. Like, thank you, but to, not today, Satan. So you want a pilot who's so competent, they're nearly bored at what they're doing. Uh, good evening, everybody. We're flying to New York. We're going to be cruising at 40,000 feet uh, up in the front of the galley. We've got Carl and at the back of the plane, we've got Eric. who will be t- taking good care of you. Uh, flight time is four hours, 73 minutes and 22 seconds, I believe. <laughs> See you then. They're like, all right, I can sleep on that plane. So yeah, yeah, got to have the competence to back up the confidence to build the trust through the integration of what you say and do in order to have a successful conclusion that's sales that's negotiation that's presentations that's that's influence all boils down to integrity
0: yeah, the last thing you want to do when you're when you're purchasing anything from any company and the, the used car salesman is always you know the best example, but the last thing you want to do is walk into the car lot and and feel like he is trying to pull the wool over your eyes and he's not, he doesn't have that confidence. He's, uh, first of all, let me go talk to my manager over here and see if I could get you a better deal on this. And, you know, I don't know about, I don't know what we're going to be able to do here. And it's always just this, it, it doesn't feel, it doesn't feel like there's any integrity. It doesn't, there's no trust. There's no established rapport. And you know, it's, it's, it just never works that way. I'm curious. You actually said something that that I found really interesting. You said that you want to have the audience member or the participant understand or believe they can do, um, they can do things that they didn't think they could do before. And to me, I, I am a, and I like to use this word. I am a delusional optimist. I truly believe that success is going to happen in my life, whether experts say it's possible or not. So I'm curious if you are trying to have participants feel like they can do something that they didn't think was possible. What's your feeling on optimism? What's your feeling on on whether it's your crowd, you or people in general having this optimistic outlook in life?
1: Ooh, that's a that's a great question. Everybody's reasons make sense internally. Within the framework of your experience, it's perfectly logical why it won't work. You just need one reason why it will work. And all those million logical reasons for failure are non-existent. So if I can prove to somebody that their limits that are logical are not real. It gives them the glimmer of a chance to identify that maybe that unreasonable goal is possible.
0: That's I love that. That's such, I I was, I mean, I was curious what you're going to say In response to that, and it wasn't like a planned out question, I love that answer. I love the idea that you're giving a glimmer of hope. And I love that you can point something out to change the mind of someone in your audience that may potentially change the course of their life based on their mindset. Exactly. And I, I think I think the power of the mind is so important. And obviously, I'm, I'm preaching to the choir here. But I think what you're doing is, if, if you truly are able to provide hope in terms of saying, you know what, you are limited. The way I have unlocked this area of your mind to say, your perception of your limitations is false. It's false. I've now unlocked this entire portion of opportunity. And, and it's just this light pouring in saying, you know what, you are capable of more, you are limiting yourself. That's amazing.
1: And I, I, I can do that. Like, I know I can do it because I do it every time I show up to work, which is to me, I love it. Watching, like you said, that light pour in is the beautiful moment for me. That is why I keep showing up to work because if I don't do it, who else will? And one of the demonstrations that I like to use to not just explain that point, not just tell a story about it that people can relate to, but walk them through it in their experience so that they can't argue with it. There's a demonstration that I do where I, I'm kind of giving it away, so if anybody listening to this wants to book me later, don't ruin it for your audience. But the the demonstration is, I I go all right, um, just show of hands, or just raise your hand if um, if you can say the alphabet backwards. Like one person might I'm like, okay, you're you don't have to play this game, so you're you're out. Everybody else, if I asked you to learn how to say the alphabet backwards raise your hand if you think you could do it within a week. So keep your keep your hand up. And I go, all right, so everybody keep your hands up because we're going to do a reverse auction. Uh, when you think it's too little time and you wouldn't be able to do it in that amount of time, lower your hands. So we go one day and then some people's hands go down. We go Okay, 12 hours, uh, six hours, and more hands are going down. And then we get down to one hour and then 30 minutes. And then there's one person there uh 10 minutes 5 minutes 3 minutes their hands still up and i'm like okay now if you could have done this in 3 minutes why haven't you done it already you're just being cantankerous aren't you and they're like yeah like okay so put your hand down so uh what do we have so uh 30 minutes was the next fastest that that they believe that they'd be able to to do this right and they go yep and they go so now here's really the situation which is all of you are convinced that there's no way that you would be able to learn the alphabet backwards in less than 30 minutes, right? And everybody's like, yep. Like, so it'd be impossible. No way for that to happen. They're like, no way. I'm like, okay, cool. Well, we're going to do it in three minutes. And then we walk through it. And three minutes later, there are people saying the alphabet backwards. So th- they know it's not possible in, in fewer than 30 minutes. And in one-tenth that time, they're doing it. They're proving themselves wrong, using the strategy I know works, to prove their limits are imaginary. And the limits you imagine are the limits you abide by and you're not even aware of how many of those
0: non-real limits you have in your life that's so cool that's it's um it's it's one way obviously to uh to do that and I would imagine that it's so applicable in so many other areas other than um, trying to get out of a DUI right <laughs> right, but, right exactly. but, uh, but being able to being able to establish that you can learn and understanding that you are capable your mind is capable of of figuring something out that you do perceive is difficult in in a time frame that that seems uh, unmanageable to you. Is is crazy. I'm curious. Um did you feel like you had any? And not did you, because I I would imagine you you might. Did you have adversity in your life that, that you've established that you've that you've had to overcome, that you have applied these these traits to, or even before you understood any of this, was there adversity that you were uh maybe using some of these tricks to overcome? Or did you figure out a different way?
1: I, I would say yes, none, none of them I regret or am frustrated by because going through my life is how I am, who I am, and, and I love me. So none of this is sour grapes at all. Um, I grew up living in a trailer, in a trailer park, in a dirt road, in the mountains of North Carolina before the internet. My dad worked in factories, 12 hours a day, four days on, three days off. Then sometimes it would be third shift. So he'd be sleeping during the day and we'd be waking him up. And now that I'm older, I totally get it why he'd be super frustrated at us, right? My mom worked as a secretary. They had to make decisions that I don't ever want anybody to ever have to make. Because some days it was, we may not have enough gas to get to work, but the gas money would have to come from lunch money. And as parents, what a heartbreaking decision to make, right? Like, I can't imagine being my parents and being in those those places, right? They never made me feel unloved. Like, I always felt wanted. And to me, that's the most valuable treasure because there's a lot of people that grew up with money that didn't feel like they belonged. So I wouldn't trade my upbringing at all in any way, shape, or form. But it's not like I was born with world-class mentors, with people with lots of money who taught me how to make money, who taught me how to connect with world-class movers and shakers and the doers and the people that do multi-million dollar opportunities and negotiating. I had to learn all of that, all of it. I had to learn it. So it was kind of meta to realize that all the applied psychology and the strategies and techniques that I was using in my little performances at the neighborhood parties, and then on bigger and bigger stages, all the stuff I was using on stage was what I was using off stage to get those bookings, to get those opportunities, to connect with people who are looking for speakers and and all that kind of stuff. So it's kind of meta to realize, oh, I've already been doing this stuff for a decade and it's now taken me around the world and I've lived an amazing life. My friends are the coolest people on the planet. I now have performed in Vegas. I, I got brought in handpicked to work with Chris Angel on a national TV project. Those kinds of opportunities don't just happen because they were given to you, right? Like, how in the world would you find that that awkward introverted kid growing up in a trailer park? That's not what you think of when you think world-class success. So, none of this stuff was because it was nepotism. None of this stuff was because it was easy. And I I wouldn't trade my path for anybody because now those things that I had to learn the hard way and learn how to connect with world-class mentors, ask great questions, and then shut up when they told me what to do and then just go do it is how I've gotten to be where I am. So, yeah, it, it wasn't easy. And I'm thankful for that.
0: Did that awkward introverted kid think that your current life was possible? I don't think so.
1: It was just a maniacal focus on it. Which was every single moment, I would ask myself, "Does this move me closer or farther away?" It didn't really care what it cost. Just, does this get me closer or farther away? It made decision making real easy.
0: Yeah, it's interesting. You actually have a quote um, that that was on. I don't know if it's on your website, but it it said. Your life is the result of the continuous little decisions that you make every day. And it sounds like these little decisions have manifested into your life. What what are some of these little decisions? Well,
1: in let's put it into context of of product design. The iPhone, one of the most revolutionary pieces of technology on the planet. Sure, there were other touch devices, there were other cell phones, but there wasn't Another iPhone, so the iPhone really put it together. The iPhone is one of the most valuable products in human history. Just full stop. It is the most amazing piece of technology. I, I'm also an Android user, so please take that with a grain of salt. But like cell phones and what they can do. Good lord, that's that's amazing. Okay, it is so valuable not because it just dropped out of the sky the way that it is. The end product is the result. It is the function of a thousand decisions made before it came into existence. So the value of the end product is predicated by a thousand other smaller choices that create its value as it is. So your life is a whole range of options and every moment you're deciding which of those decision trees you're going to feed and all the rest you're going to prune because every action cuts off all other potentials. So the state of your life right now is the function of all the choices you've made about the stuff that's happened to and around you. And it's your decisions about that stuff that, to me, matter more than what it is that happened.
0: It makes a lot of sense. That makes a lot of sense. Um, yeah, I mean, I think you can look at a lot of what you do on a daily basis and say, well, what I'm going to do today is going to make me better. It's going to make me Complacent. It could make me worse, right? You're going one way or the other. And I I like to think about that on a daily basis and think, I'm the the world is moving at what is it, 10,000 miles an hour, right? So you have the decision to do something that's going to move you towards your goals. And you could take that step and you can do it. Or you can make another decision that's going to move you away from them. But additionally, the third decision is just to stand still. And the problem with standing still is that the world is just going to pass you by. So I think you have to be very, very decisive and very cognizant of the decisions you're making. And all those little decisions, like you said, matter so much, especially when you're a little kid from a trailer in North Carolina with big goals. Because if you slip up, who knows what happens? Who knows what happens? Every decision is important because you're aggregating on top of your last decision, and I think that's I think you're you're a great example of someone who wanted something. You might not 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 have known what you even wanted, but you knew you had just a dream for yourself, and you had the discipline to make the decisions to go for. and i I, I greatly appreciate that mindset and, and you sharing that story. I'm curious you also are into wing chun kung fu. Do you think that has anything to do with that mindset or is that something or is that just a tool you use to kind of stay sharp or what what's your theory on that?
1: Oh man, one one detail that informs the answer is that I haven't always made the best decisions that moved me towards right? Because there have been some times where I made a decision and immediately knew, yeah, that wasn't good. And there goes a year of my life. And that whole year is a feeling I wouldn't want to wish on anybody. Like I went to college and then I immediately withdrew after the first semester because of my then girlfriend. And I knew at that moment when I went back home, that was a really really bad choice to make <laughs> really bad choice to make so that whole year i was in limbo before i got accepted back into the college somehow and then picked up where i left off but that was a really awful year it it was it did not feel good i don't ever want that to happen ever again well then it did because i got married when i was kind of young and then i made some decisions that I shouldn't have made, but I did. And then I get to live with the consequences. We get divorced. So then that sends me off balance for quite a while. So then I, I had dreams. I had where I wanted to go and I wasn't quite getting there and everything was just falling apart. Like Chinua Chibe, things fall apart, right? Um, and then I find my Kung Fu instructor and it was no matter how bad things are today i at least know i need to do my forms i need to do my practice i need to do this every day and it was that daily practice that was on me i didn't need to wait on anybody i didn't there was no external dependencies I was the sole deciding factor of whether this would get done today or not. That was the tiny seed of the structure that would grow into building a framework that I could then rely on to then be able to move it towards my dreams again and be integrated enough to be dependable for my clients and friends and family and that kind of thing. So Wing Chun isn't just a tool. It's kind of the tool. <laughs> it is, it is the, the fundamental framework that provides the solid base that everything else can rely on. Because it deals with the base physical layer of reality. If you can't even manage that element of life at its most concrete, how in the world so you think you're going to manage more and more abstract layers like your thoughts, your emotions, your breathing, the, the most abstract, your energy, your vibes, right? Just kind of the, your, your mojo that people kind of feel when you walk in the room. If you can't even manage your physical layer, no way in the world you're going to adequately manage more and more abstract, less available to direct manipulation is kind of a way I like to think about it. So Kung Fu is the technology of learning to manage your base layer successfully in very, very tough dynamics so that you now have rock solid proof of what works and what doesn't so that you can manage the more dynamic, abstract relationships moving forward. So a lot of times when people ask me questions about strategy, business strategy, relationship strategy, whatever, all I have to do, I'm kind of giving away my secrets here. All I have to do is translate that question into somebody's trying to punch me this way. What should I do about it? And then it becomes very clear. Are you going to hope your way out of it? Are you going to wish your way out of it? Are you going to try to feel different about it? Is that going to help you? No. What are you going to do in order to minimize their ability to to control your decisions? And it's only what you do about it that's going to keep you safe. You can't just like do use mind bullets or use use influence of mind control. None of that's going to work. What are you going to do about it? That's that's it. So it teaches you real quick. Don't think your way out. Don't overthink your way out. Be in the moment. Be in dynamic relationship with right now. Maintain your structure, your integrity, your balance by moving in relationship with the moment. That's the only way that you're going to successfully navigate through that dynamic in a way that is
0: beneficial to you. So... I was going to take this next question in a different direction, but I'm really curious. It, it, it's kind of f- my uh, my perspective on this is flipped based on our conversation. Because when we first started talking, I thought, you know, this guy's got to be just some sort of genius. And it sounds like you did really well on the SATs, you know, as a, as a youngster. But I'm like, this guy's got to be some sort of genius in his mind. he just got to be like this this sponge in this This powerful tool, and I'm sure it is. And I was going to ask you before talking to you, I was going to ask how that, how fitness and kung fu, if you felt like your ability to be a mentalist and your perception of psychology and the human and the human mind, how that helped you be successful in fitness. But now, after talking, I'm kind of like, you know what? Jonathan's just like everyone else he's normal. He's a human. He's just like anyone. And fitness isn't something that he's good at because of his understanding of psychology. He has a better understanding of psychology because of fitness, which I think is so important. And it's it's something that to me is so important in my life. And I think that fitness and your human body, having that just at optimized level, and and taking care of it is so important. Not just for the mind, or not just for the body, but for the mind. And it's it's interesting based on this conversation because it it, it is kind of flipped in the way I wanted to ask you the question. I Man, what do you think about that? Thank you.
1: That that's a that's a really good insight because if people walk away believing I'm special. That absolves them of doing the work. It's easy for Jonathan. He was born that way. Well, it's easy for him because, well, he doesn't have to deal with the problems I deal with. And if people walk away believing I have a gift, they can walk away believing, well, I wasn't born with that gift. And therefore, I can ignore everything he's talking about. So to me, when people go, oh, when did you first know you had the gift? I I hate that. That is one of my biggest pet peeves because I see it as their way to abdicate themselves from owning up to the, de- the decisions they've made to live the life they're living, right? So, so that's a, a huge part of it. Um, and you're right. Like the, the physical layer is essential. And in a way, my mentalism background helped me on the Kung Fu angle. I learned the Wing Chun system – faster than anybody else. My teacher had ever taught in 20 years. Part of that was because I don't, I didn't have a day job. I didn't have to go anywhere. So for nine hours a day, I could do Kung Fu. (laughs) It was awesome. So, so I learned it in about nine months. What usually takes people three, five years, went through the testing and, and all that kind of stuff. So I could learn it faster most people do because I know the skills of learning skills. Okay. That's kind of cool. So on that front, it definitely helped out. But the the way that I see it is that I I had this inkling that like, I've been an atheist most of my life. So that's, that's there. I have an inkling that we have a soul, a spirit Right. The enthusiasm, the thing that animates this meat sack. This this spirit that is universal and timeless, because no matter where this planet Earth has spun in relationship to the galaxy, I'm still there. So that's kind of cool. So I think that the spirit is universal and your body is kind of like a, a radio. And it's tuned to your spirit level, right? Like, okay. So it's kind of like the car has a radio in it and the car's driving, the car's changing position, but it's still receiving the signal. But then if the car gets mangled, the radio's ability to receive the signal is damaged too. Right? So, When the radio is destroyed, the signal isn't destroyed, but it really makes it tough for that signal to come through, right? So the better I keep my body in tune, the better my experience while my awareness is locked in this meat sack. So I want to keep my radio in good working condition as long as I can to make sure that the quality of reception of this animating spirit is, is kept tuned up as long as possible.
0: So get off your ass and get your radio work done.
1: <laughs> that's right. That's right.
0: <laughs> Man, That's so cool. So, you know, we've been talking for a while. And if, if any of my listeners uh, is not interested in, in what you are able to provide, uh, I would be, shocked. I'm interested in, in what you're doing, um, to help others. And it's not just through speaking. So you have created a mind reset transformation course. Tell me about this course and tell me what you're doing with that.
1: It makes it sound intimidating and it's not, I promise you it's, it is four videos spread out over four days. So you you watch the first video, you're locked out for 24 hours until you get access to the second one, because I want you to have enough time to digest the mind bombs that are in there. So they kind of set off, cascade, then you're ready for idea two, that kind of thing. All total, it's 23 minutes. 23 minutes over four days, that's it. That's the extent of your engagement. That's it. But basically, it is helping people rewire how they think about procrastination. Because just like, oh, I have a bad memory. No, you have bad strategies about engaging with information that you can recall later. Most people don't take action because of procrastination. And it's for a variety of beliefs, a lot of reasons, but it all boils down to, I'll get to it later. And people don't recognize how much of their life they're missing out on because of how long it takes them to get around to beta testing that idea that could have been a million-dollar idea. could have been a god-awful idea, but the faster you, you recognize which one it is, the sooner you can either make it happen or move on to the next one. Instead of just letting your your dreams live in this limbo state of, oh, I could do anything if I just had the relationships. Oh, I could do it if I had the money Jonathan has. Guess what, sucker? I grew up poor. Like, I, my car got repossessed twice after I got divorced. You don't have excuses. <laughs> so, that that course is free. You just sign up. You set up a, an account at Elite University it's just elite.university and then over the course of 4 days we work together me in video form and all you got to do is sit there for 5 minutes and then apply what it is I share with you and it will it will transform your mindset reset how you're thinking about your problems so that you can transform your current situation so to me that's that's the place to start however Understand that if you sign up and you don't go through it, it's four days later and you haven't completed it. I'm going to send you a PayPal link for 20 bucks for wasting your time. You don't have to pay it, but you will know you should. Because you'll know you're guilty. And to me, that's a hilarious way to keep you honest with yourself. So you don't have to buy it. It's free. You implement it. I will know if you complete it. The course thing just keeps track of how long the video plays. And if you don't complete it and you procrastinate about fixing your procrastination, that's about the stupidest thing on the planet. And it's worth at least 20 bucks of of my time to laugh at it. So that's that's why that's there.
0: <laughs> that's so that's hilarious, by the way. That's like every gold gym or 24 hour fitness. It's like it's that fat fee for not showing up uh, that $17 a month fee for someone who who refuses to go to the gym. And they're like, "Ugh, I'd rather just pay $17 and cancel my membership. Cause I know, I know this is just my fee for being lazy. That's yeah. so funny. Um, but it sounds like an awesome, it sounds like an awesome, uh, opportunity to, to better yourself. And and based on your story of being able to teach people how to say the alphabet backwards in three minutes, twenty-three minutes seems like you can get a ton done. So exactly. people, people who think they need to go to university to reset their minds for uh, for four years, guys, you're missing out. This is twenty-three minutes, and Jonathan's proven he could do it. Z Y X B C A. <laughs> I haven't done exactly. the, uh, exactly. I haven't done that backwards yet, but um. But that's awesome, man, Jonathan, this has been awesome. I truly I have really enjoyed this conversation. You are an amazing guy. I, I wish that one day I can I can be a part of one of your uh, one of your trainings, one of your um, speaking engagements, and um, I'm, I'm going to give this uh, this transformation a shot. I think it's a really cool thing. I procrastinate way too much. hopefully I don't procrastinate um, taking advantage of this opportunity, but Jonathan, thank you so much for joining me. This really has been a blast. And, uh, and where can people find you, man?
1: Dude, my pleasure. It is, it is one of my deepest honors to be able to share my thoughts. So I genuinely deeply appreciate the invitation. Um, the, the best place to find me is at elite University so elite.university is the whole url that'll that'll get you to the right place and from there under about you can find links to my twitter where i'm most active my linkedin if you want to connect professionally um, and and talk about the hellstrom group which is the consulting company that i founded um, so we we focus on workshops focusing on on sales negotiation and presentation skills so each Each is its own two-day workshop limited to 16 people so that we can do one-on-one real-time feedback, that kind of thing. Um, But if you want to connect as a person and you don't work at a big company that can bring in uh, $15,000 workshops, that kind of thing, Elite.U University is where you can get access to the same kinds of content focused on the individual. So that's, that's the main place to go.
0: Awesome. Jonathan Pritchard. Thanks, man. This was awesome.